You're listening to Making Global Learning Universal, conversations about engaging diverse perspectives, collaboration, and complex problem solving in higher education, on campus, online, in local communities, and abroad. I'm your host, Stephanie Dosher, Director of Global Learning Initiatives at Florida International University and co-author of Making Global Learning Universal, promoting inclusion and success for all. Uh, when you spend time in um, listening to someone's story, their testimonials, um, their, their, their deepest hurtful experiences, um, and it broadens your understanding, it uh, challenges you, you know, that cognitive dis- dissonance and so forth. Um, and, and then you, you, you start to change how you view that person, or if not that person, how you view people um, who you've identified like that person, their group. There's a lot of connectedness there. That was Daniel Griffith, Director of Conflict Resolution and Dialogue Programs at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, commonly referred to as IUPUI. I met Daniel at IUPUI's Intercultural Engagement Symposium in September of 2019 when I was giving a keynote on the relationship between intercultural communication and global learning. Later that afternoon, Daniel gave a great talk on IUPUI's model of intergroup dialogue, and I knew I wanted to invite him onto the podcast. Now, before we launch into our conversation, let me share with you just a little bit about what intergroup dialogue is all about. It's basically a method for facilitating difficult conversations between people from two or more social identity groups. It involves sustained face-to-face discussions around issues related to social justice, identity, positionality, and power. The dialogues are co-facilitated by trained individuals representing each of the groups. There's a lot to IUPUI's program, which involves both faculty and students, and it's loosely modeled on University of Michigan's program on intergroup relations. After you listen to the episode, Check out the show notes for more resources on how you can facilitate intergroup dialogue on your campus. But for now, here's my conversation with Daniel. So I think as we get started in our conversation today, Daniel, that it would be good to hear you talk a little bit about who you are and and what you do in your own words, right? People can read your biography, but I think it would be helpful for you to explain uh, your place in your institution and the nature of your work. Sure. Well, uh, that's a good question. I think of, uh, how do I answer that in terms of uh, the resume versus the uh, who I am and what I stand for, I guess, is kind of what we're looking at. Maybe as a step back, I know the broader picture here is looking at intergroup dialogue, and I've certainly been a part of that program for a number of years. But I guess in terms of the overall theme of what I do, I feel as though it's it's a matter of um, facilitating process, facilitating um, how people can connect and communicate and understand one another. So, um, I mean, formally, my t- my title is uh, Director of Conflict Resolution and Dialogue Programs. I'm in the um, Division of uh, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion here at IEPUI. Um, I also teach uh, part-time, such as in a, a course in Negotiation Alternative Dispute Resolution for our um, uh, School of Public Environmental Affairs. also teach at our law school part-time in a mediation practice. And by the way, I'm a lawyer. So, um, <laughs> you know, so, so really it, 
the background, I, I'm not sure the, the legal background is uh, that unique or not, not just unique. It's not that um, uh, common in this area, perhaps, in terms of intergroup dialogue, but it sort of evolved that way. So, I mean, I, I've been in IEPI for 20 plus years. Prior to that, I had I practiced as a lawyer for a while in the state of Indiana. But um, I think it just evolved in terms of uh, wanting to move from um, all that compliance kind of uh, practice and um, getting people to behave, so to speak, in different ways to how people can reflect and think and communicate and, and solve their own problems. Um, I have a passion for intergroup dialogue, but I have a deep passion for mediation and also training others to be mediators. Um, and, and I think the passion around it is helping people um, solve their own problems, um, helping them, uh, being a part of the, the process of helping them talk through issues. Um, and and, and right, frankly, the most wonderful moments are when they're working out their own issues and they forget that I'm in the room. And that's a classic way of, of uh, mediating where, you know, they, they stop they stop remembering you're there because they're starting to work things out on their own. Mm -hmm. So, so, so I, I, I see a lot of that in terms of my background is facilitating those kind of conversations, the process of how we communicate, work through things. Um, and that's probably the broader theme, I guess. <laughs> so. I, I, I love this because you're already starting to change perspective a little bit on what lawyering can sure. be all about. Mm -hmm. My mom has a saying about everybody hates lawyers until they need one, yes. right? And then they're the most important people right. in your lives. But I don't think she's talking about the fact that lawyers help us to solve our own problems, right? Right, like right. You just, you just kind of turn the tables on on the common perspective of, of what a lawyer is there to, to help us do. Right. And, and I think it, it would also help for us to share with listeners how it is that we met and why I invited you to, <laughs> to, to be on uh, in season two. I was invited to come to speak at the Intercultural Communication Symposium at right. IUPUI, and you also spoke at that right. symposium. Mm -hmm. So could you share a little bit about how it is that you came to be invited to that symposium? Because you, you talked about your placement with your program's placement within the university. Mm -hmm. Sure. Now, I, I will say that my background in terms of the global learning, that's not where I've, where I've come from, so to speak. But um, certainly I've connected with a lot of faculty on our campus on intergroup dialogue. And so, I mean, the most direct communication was through the organizer and I'm trying to remember her name. Estela. <laughs> yes, there you go. I um, just spent she, the week with her in Mexico. Okay, okay, <laughs> yep. um, and, uh, and she, we had already talked, a colleague of mine who are involved in intergroup dialogue problem had already, program had already talked to her about intergroup dialogue a little bit. And then she contacted me and saying, could you explain intergroup dialogue as a session at this conference, a symposium? And so that's a direct connection. But I think more broadly, um, the intergroup dialogue effort on our campus has been a matter of, um, uh, of um, looking at broadly about how groups communicate, talk through issues, the importance of having serious conversations on the things that are hard to talk about, race, gender, sexual orientation, you know, social identity. Um, we 
She's got a lot of support in that model from the University of Michigan program in intergroup relations, who I'd recommend any institution going to to get more support on that. But it was just a, a process over many years of uh, connecting with our community at large. It wasn't just faculty, a lot of staff, uh, and really first staff and faculty to look at ways of how we can understand intergroup dialogue so we can learn it for ourselves and then move to teaching it um, in the classroom for students. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of connections through faculty happened. And uh, um, so that was among them uh, where, where they were trying to look at how intergroup dialogue can fit with global learning and, and those kind of um, mm-hmm. curriculum. Yeah. And, and, I'll, and I'll clarify that Estela, who was yes. g- directing and facilitating the intercultural communication uh, programs and services that are happening at IUPUI, she's part of that leadership team. Right. Mm-hmm. We were in Mexico, not on vacation. <laughs> we were in well, Mexico for <laughs> we were in Mexico for a congress on uh, innovation in education at mm-hmm. Tech de Monterrey, and um, the the tie in there between global learning, intercultural dialogue, and some of the things that we're going to talk about today is collaborative online international learning. So bringing together groups of people who are studying perhaps different disciplines, different topics in those disciplines, and in different countries. So our entire conversation today is about really bringing people together who may be seated in different perspectives Mm -hmm. into a common space. And the name of this of this process that you use at IUPUI and also at other institutions is intergroup dialogue. And so could we take a a deeper dive into what that looks like? I mean, we're not talking about just having a debate in our class. Far from it. (laughs) Okay. Far from debate. (laughs) Yeah. So so what does it really look like in intergroup dialogue course? Well, and, and since you mentioned the word debate, I mean, part of the uh, part of the training is comparing debate to concepts like discussion and, di- and dialogue. So we get we get down to some definitions about that. So we're careful about not using word the debate, mm-hmm. using the word debate. Um, so obviously, let's start with just the model of what what the what happens in the room and how it's set up. So any any intergroup dialogue is basically a group of 14 to 16 people. Mm-hmm. And depending on the, in, in each dialogue is focused on a particular um, aspect of social identity. It could be a couple identities, but for the most part, and it could, intersectionality is fine in talking about that, but typically it's one identity. So we would have a race dialogue, a sexual orientation dialogue, religion dialogue, and what have you. And the people in the room are um, more or less equally, um, you know, uh, a parity in terms of representation. So Obviously, 14 to um, 16 people, seven to eight people would be people of color in a race dialogue. The other group would be um, white participants. And it's co-facilitated that way. So um, I've, uh, and, and, and it's it's also looking at in the context of who's in the room, uh, it's the target group, which is the um, underrepresented disadvantaged group and what, what however we would look at that. And then the um, agent group. Mm-hmm. And um, as a straight white man, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a, uh, typically the uh, co-facilitator representing that group. 
and, and race dialogues have done many of them. And it was uh, typically with an African-American female, not always, but for the most part, uh, there's a number of colleagues I had that, that we facilitated those race dialogues. So that's the setup in the room and who shows up. And obviously it, we go into logistics, but that's the basic idea of who shows up. And, and the dialogue process goes through a, a, an intentional step-by-step -step process of, of activities. So it is a four-stage model. Um, so the first phase is all, all about learning dialogue skills and visiting that, understanding listening, understanding what dialogue, dialogue is as compared to debate. Dialogue being all about how we explore our assumptions, how we have inquiry as well as listening, how um, we, we, we uh, stop, we examine where we're judging one another, examining where, where we're um, shutting down because of something someone has said, all these sort of things that to, to develop an environment where we can truly understand dialogue and those principles. And as we do that, we then move into stage two, which is it's a lot about looking at our identities. So um, I think stage two, frankly, if, if I, as I've done these dialogues is probably the most powerful um, where you're, it, there's a lot of different activities we've done, some low stakes, some higher stakes where people are sharing aspects of their identity and their experience. Um, a low stakes example, one thing we do is what's called a culture box. People bring artifacts that represent their culture if it's a race dialogue, if they can, it's related to race, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, but just sharing, this is this is meaningful to me, whatever that object is. It could be a picture, it could be a, um, a rock, it could be a, it could be any kind of uh, a piece of jewelry, it could be a, um, a painting, a book, what, you, you name it, they bring it in, um, or a picture of it if it's too big. Yeah. And uh, they say that, uh, you know, this speaks to my identity, um, in this way. Mm -hmm. And we, and it's a, a matter of learning and just listening in that regard. And, and, and now higher stakes um, activities when we look at identity and share those experiences um, are about, you know, testimonials of when people have experienced uh, privilege, when they've experienced uh, oppression, discrimination, disadvantage, and the process is a lot of listening, um, not this deep inquiry, not, not just sort of probing, not to put people on the spot or to create um, tax um, people more, particularly uh, disadvantaged groups. Um, and, and, and the whole idea here is the, those first two stages, understanding good dialogue principles, sharing our experiences and things like that, is so that we're better prepared for the third stage, which we call in our institution critical um, conversations or difficult conversations. Um, so, so here's the thing, that when you talk about issues of race, gender, on and on, in terms of social identity and all the aspects of that in terms of uh, um, you know, experience um, at, at different levels, interpersonal as well as systemic. We need to talk about these things, but we're, we're often very hesitant to. We don't want to talk about them because it's, it's perceived as too difficult, too negative, um, too much of a risk. And it's, I'm not saying it isn't a risk in a dialogue, but the point of those first two uh, stages and going through that is to better prepare us for those difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. and, and it does help. And again, I think another thing about the dialogue is it's a sustained effort a number of meetings over time. And uh, so you get to know those the same people in, the, in that room. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the dialogue among those people. It's for them. It's not for anyone outside that. Mm -hmm. So it's learning experiences through that. So it, it creates an environment that's uh, uh, safer, not always comfortable to talk about those difficult issues. And then finally, uh, it, the fourth stage is about building alliances. So in my view, that stage is about why do we do this? Uh, what, wh why does this matter? So again, we talk about being an ally for those in, who are disadvantaged, um, uh, 
lacking, uh, having negative experiences in different ways. And it's at all levels, how we can learn more about stepping in when we hear a prejudicial comment or how we can um, work together as a group or individually to, uh, to uh, address a, an issue in our, in our university, for example, or even just as, as simple as what, what's different about us after this dialogue? What's different about us individually that we might do differently to commit to social change and social action at different levels. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really a, a, an intentional, deeper um, exploration of these issues and in in, in what we try to create is a safe environment to do that. Experiences have been good. People find value in it. And, uh, and, and so that's the process and that's been the, I think it's been successful as far as the actual experiences we've been doing, so yeah. So I have a couple of questions. Um, you said, building these dialogues over time. So like, how long would an, an encounter last and over what period of time and how frequent do those right. encounters happen? So, so I will say the, the model that we started from is again, the University of Michigan Program in Intergroup Relations. And their model is uh, using the dialogue in, a, in the curriculum in their classes, I think, uh, Secret psychology and um, sociology. There might be other uh, back courses, but um, and so so for their model, which we have not, we're trying to replicate in our own way, not successful yet because it's it's a it's it's an uphill battle. It really is a lot of resources involved. But their model is basically you take a, a you know a sixteen week course, and an, an instructor uh, teaches the content of that course, and usually the course is around something around diversity in some in some way. And then um, the ideal model is the, the dialogues are separate from the instructional piece. And, the, and again, the ideal model is that it's, it's peer facilitated. So in, in University of Michigan's model, they're developing students to go through the experience of dialogue to then be peer facilitators in facilitating the dialogues with other students. We aspire to that, we're not quite there, but, uh, but that just gives you an idea. It's, if, if, you're, if, if we could replicate their model, it would be Basically, um, in a 16-week semester, you know, maybe 13 of those weeks would be dialogues going through the process. Now, what we've done in our campus, we started out with looking at faculty and staff dialogues. So it's not obviously a semester-based sort of approach. Um, we've actually signed up people, and, and we've sort of had either, either like a three-and-a-half or four-day model. And when I say it, it doesn't necessarily mean three-and-a-half compressed days. It could be a no, like seven half days, those sort of things over a course of a number of weeks. Um, and we sort of adapted that model to explore that with the same group over the course of that, that time period. So. Okay, so <laughs> you started with faculty and staff dialogues. Yes. And was the purpose of that to build, to, to deal with issues that were happening in, in terms of faculty and staff and or to enable faculty and staff to then facilitate intergroup dialogue? Yes. <laughs> All <Yeah>. the above. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, you know, like any university, I mean, uh, these days uh, our IEPI has, has its challenges in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, in terms mm -hmm. of how students feel, what they're experiencing. Um, maybe just a little bit of how we started. Um, it, it, we've been at it for about 10 years now, maybe not quite 10 years. And uh, the initial uh, it, uh, suggestion came actually from a, 
who's now a former vice chancellor of all things of finance administration. Oh, wow. But uh, she had a, a, uh, she is actually a graduate of the University of Michigan. And her, um, her daughter um, was participating um, in the program at University of Michigan at the time that she took a job at IUPUI. And so at the time at IUPUI, there were some things going on to, that students had concerns about a few issues. And uh, I believe that was some initial suggestions by her to say, you might want to look at in-group dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the course of a couple of years, uh, um, I was like, actually not one of the initial people involved, um, but maybe two years into that, I was contacted to uh, sort of take a leadership role, partly, and again, partly because uh, someone knew of my mediation background and my training background. And, but but the, whole, the whole initial conversations that I had along with many colleagues was, we need to um, learn this ourselves first before we would expect students to do so. And so that's sort of how it began. And, and, and frankly, I, I also felt it was a, a matter of that we have to get faculty and staff to experience this, to be able to talk, talk it up, to feel positive about those experiences, um, to then build towards a, a, a model where we might look at the students in, in terms of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So it really did start a faculty staff. I think we're a little unique. I don't think, I think many universities are, are looking at faculty and staff dialogues. Um, I think a lot of it more is in the curriculum for students. Um, and it, it I, you know, it can go different ways, but I'm, I am proud that we've, we've been able to do some things with faculty and staff to, to look at that. And then hopefully that'll translate in terms of, terms of what some faculty well, it is. I mean, some faculty are already experiencing it who have experienced their dialogue first are now looking at curriculum. We now, um, after that, the t- in the course of that time, we now have an undergraduate certificate in our group dialogue. We have four schools on our campus who are part of that certificate. So we are um, in a lot of growing pains. I'll just say it's been a, a slow process, but we now have a certificate where many faculty have gone through the dialogue, experienced it, thought about how it fits in the curriculum, are now trying to look at how they can uh, have courses where students can now have the intergroup dialogue experience. And and so with a certificate, is that something that one would earn as a facilitator? Are there there courses that one would take? And what does that look like? (laughs) Well, again, again, this is our sort of our version of what what University of Michigan has done. Uh, But again, uh, we've we've gone our own way in many ways. But um, the it's a four four course certificate. And so we have a whole series of what we refer to as dialogue intensive courses that any student can sign up for. And that is where we're looking at instructors building an intergroup dialogue into the curriculum so that in in addition to whatever learning in the curriculum they need to do, um, students are um, also experiencing it through dialogue processes and conversations that way. And so after that experience, if there are students who then want to pursue their certificate, uh, there are three more courses they would go through. One is a, a specific intergroup dialogue training course, training facilitator course. So we have a couple of instructors who have, a, who have that course. And so they are learning how to facilitate those dialogue processes. There is another course. They just need to do a, at least one additional course, a number of topics, a, a whole smorgasbord of different uh, pro, uh, courses they could take that are really just we call additional grounding, not really intergroup dialogue specific. It's just a matter of something deeper in their, you know, something like women's studies course or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. And then the, the capstone is intended to have um, identify students to then um, go back to those initial dialogue intensive courses to be facilitators in those courses. And, and so, and, and that, that is more or less um, 
University of Michigan has their version of that, which is pretty robust. But that's the intent is simply a student's uh, experience it initially, go through some other experiences be to learn how to facilitate dialogue, but their capstone or whatever that final issue is, they have a semester where they're, they're now going back into the classroom to be peer facilitators with other students. I suppose it's sort of, you know, early on would be a, like a, a freshman, sophomore, or probably more like sophomore, junior, experience dialogue intensive. And then by your senior year, you're a capstone um, co-facilitator um, going into a course. And obviously that's our model. Um, we're slow in getting there, but that's yeah. the idea to, to do that. Um, so it, they, the, the, in, the, in the classroom, it really, the idea is that students be peer facilitators in that. Um, there's a lot of issues about the instructor doing it in terms of power, in terms of other things. Um, until we get more resources, we're doing a little of that, but we're trying to manage those, side of, those kind of dynamics. But the ideal is that students are, are literally peer facilitators. Um, for their, their, their fellow students. So. so I've been looking at, I've been reading about, we have not facilitated intergroup dialogue courses or activities in particular um, as part of the Global Learning Initiative at FIU. We have done some national issues for a programming. We have a, a roundtable. We call it the Tuesday Times Roundtable Discussion, which is a free discussion every Tuesday about a global topic. It's an open dialogue. So, And dialogue, those difficult dialogues with diverse others, every single year comes out as the experience that most highly impacts our students' global awareness, perspective, and engagement as we measure that through the global perspective inventory. We mm -hmm. use that as, um, as, as an assessment of our students. We take 10% samples when students enter FIU as either freshmen or transfers, and then again when they exit. We have tens of thousands of data points now, and we've analyzed on annual basis, pre-post, every which way these dialogues with diverse others stands out as a significant influencer of students' global right. mindset. Yeah. So I think that's a good spot yeah. to ask the question of what really is the relationship between intergroup dialogue as you define it and describe it and our concept of global learning as the process of diverse people collaboratively analyzing and addressing complex problems that mm -hmm. transcend borders w where's the stick the sticky spot right between <laughs> what intergroup dialogue is and what global learning is well i I think that uh, some of the stages in the model hit on that. I mean, uh, when particularly it is, I, I think it is a problem solving, um, looking at the big picture and how to uh, address these uh, complex issues and how to learn more about it. So um, I, I think well, every stage does that, but um, I noticed in terms of the definitions that you actually provided earlier, global awareness and those sort of things, talking about things like interrelatedness. Um, when you spend time in um, listening to someone's story, their testimonials, um, their, their, their deepest hurtful experiences, 
Um, and it broadens your understanding. It uh, challenges you, you know, that cognitive dis dissonance and so forth. Um, and, and then you, you, you start to change how you view that person or if not that person, how you view people um, who you've identified like that person and their group. There's a lot of connectedness there. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think that when we talk about the critical conversations, um, we talk, say problem solving. Well, first of all, understand the problem. And a lot of those uh, uh, difficult conversations, I should term we're using that. Um, the, uh, it, understand what the issues are. Now, in those conversations, we talk about situations about how we interrelate just interpersonally. Uh, I don't understand how to talk to someone who's different to me or this, of this particular type. I don't understand how they dress something like that, or all kinds of other things, sometimes expressing some true ignorance about those experiences, but, but managing it in a way that's supportive without ju being judgmental. And it also, it also covers a lot of systemic issues, whether it's what's going on in the world, what's going on on our campus, uh, what, what groups are, are not represented, what groups are being, um, or individuals being treated uh, badly because of uh, a policy, which the policy itself doesn't say it's, it's, uh, wrong, uh, but it um, its impacts. So all of those sort of things um, to me is a, a problem solving issue. And now does it change the world as far as beyond the, the intergroup dialogue? I, maybe not, but it certainly gets people thinking about how can I contribute to that? How can I contribute to to influencing that change? Um, to me, that's, that's the analytical problem solving that you talk about for global learning. So I, I think that a our listeners might be particularly interested in this problem solving piece as it relates to intergroup dialogue because mm -hmm. people will say all the time, well, we're just, that's just talk, right? Like mm -hmm. that's just talk. That's not meaningful. It's not doing something. But you implied right. earlier that there's this fourth stage mm -hmm. of building alliances and you you talked about if i heard you correctly please cor please correct me if if i didn't hear you correctly that it, that space is around connection making somewhat yeah i mean i think the whole dialogue is but yes mm -hmm. that it, it i i we we do ch challenge our participants to think about what comes next after this dialogue mm -hmm. um and and well, first of all, the, the, the concrete discussions we have around that are what it means to be an ally for someone else. Uh -huh. um, and also, um, you know, there's this sort of continuum of, of how much you participate in or against um, uh, social justice, social change. Um, so we have those conversations about having people reflect, not necessarily to share for others, but how they reflect where they are. Um, dealing with some of these issues. I mean, so, to, so one dynamic in dialogue is, is um, from my own experience. Um, I mean, I'm not, I came new to the dialogue like anyone else. I'm not, I'm not this perfect person, you know, it's just a matter of maybe a little, little openness to say, I'm willing to hear this experience. Many white uh, men in particular aren't always willing to do that. But um, I, I felt I became willing to understand whether it's me or people who look like me, how they come across, how they interact, whatever. And also came to see that, you know, not only do I have bias and prejudice, but with trusted colleagues in these rooms, I could acknowledge that bias and prejudice. I could say openly, I have this and I'm st still struggling with it. 
And then I, what I met with is, okay, we didn't expect anything different <laughs> from our perspective. <laughs> yeah. That's one. But also saying we, uh, we on our end, we have our own issues. And, and that's part of being human and talking it through. But those deeper connections and, and having people reflect about, you know, it, you know, your the dog is what it is. It's it is transformational, but you've got to think about how you take what you've done in this, you know, seven and a half, you know, seven and a half, uh, uh, seven half day sessions or what have you, what you will do further to apply this. And in that, hopefully it is that group themselves connect what they might do, particularly if it's, uh, again, I'm talking to faculty staff dogs mostly, how they are thinking about um, if, if, not, if nothing else going for coffee every now and then, or there maybe there's some common goals um, that they have that they can address. But, but it is having people think about what's the change that I can affect? What, for, I like to think for students, it might fundamentally change, if not their major, not that there's an intent to change their major because of this, but to change the direction that, of their career differently than they had thought before they started. Mm -hmm. um, I will say about the certificate itself, um, one goal that I see in that certificate is obviously a student has that certificate, um, they're looking for a job, they can waive that certificate, um, put it on their resume, what have you, and be able to say, you know, in this workplace that you're, I may be hired into, I'm comfortable, well, relatively comfortable with the conversations that need to be had um, with other colleagues who are different than me. I'm not threatened by that. In fact, I want to encourage it because that's how we create better teamwork and those sort of things. In other mm -hmm. words, employers seeing this is someone coming in who's prepared for that global workplace, prepared for that multicultural uh, workplace that um, is so needed. And, and so, so that's some of the, I think it gets a little bit to what you're asking. So about. yeah, that's some of, those are some of the actions that are yeah. possible. And when you were, when you began that, that description, you talked about being an ally. And I mm -hmm. think you also talked about being an advocate. And you also talked a little bit about power. So, it, so in the intergroup dialogue, would it be correct to say that, that there's going to be an in-group and an out-group or a, to use kind of sociological terms, or that it's a, it's a group that tends to have power in this situation and a group that doesn't tend to have power how does it not just become, well, I have to do something. It's my responsibility to, to, to lift these people, right? And as that might be what the powerful yeah. come, come out of. And the power, those who entered from a, a less powerful point of view, walking in saying, walking out saying, well, it's my job just to empathize with the fact that they were just brought up that way. They don't mean it. And and I just have to understand better that that's why it happens I, or, or that I just have to school them. It's my response. Like the action that I have to take is to keep calling them on their crap. Right. Right. Like, how does it not be that? that they have to school? Right. We don't want them to feel that they have to school others, whatever, and put them in a spot. But, but right. How does it become beyond those th things you're describing? Um, first of all, power is definitely something we have to talk about the, the differentials or the, 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 um, uh, how how it's perceived in different ways, um, 
the, the, the definitions in terms of the agent group and the target group is all about that. Um, there's a, so again, a, a race dialogue is probably one of the most difficult dialogues, but the easiest in some ways to illustrate these, these distinctions. Yeah. Um, just because of the quite a contrast and experience, mm -hmm. but it, 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 the dialogues tend to be a lot of time. Um, we try to, we have to manage that, but where white participants have to come to understand, not them specifically, but uh, you know, how that um, agent group um, is uh, their dominant culture, their, their experiences and, and not having to think about being disadvantaged, not having to think about, you know, many stories taking the race dialogue come up about um, being stopped by the police um, other kinds of situations like that where um, I, I you know I, I've had to learn and I've had to teach my children how to how to manage um, interactions with law enforcement again that's that's an example in white participants not having any clue what what that's about but for the most part in our room willing to listen or understand and and then coming to knowledge yeah I I've never had experience I can't relate to this but I can try and I want to and I want to do what I can to help in that regard. Mm -hmm. Now, now, the other issue about the ally conversation is um, where I think, again, we would love for just anyone to show up at our dialogues, including those on the, for lack of a better way to say, the fringes, those who uh, really, you know, we all know who they are, whoever they are, and whatever spectrum we, we're looking at, that this person needs to change, and that person needs to really go through this, to, but they don't show up. Mm -hmm. So obviously, the people who do show up are, in, are inclined to have these conversations, inclined to, to engage, but they're not always knowing what to expect. And I think one example would be a lot of white participants in a race dialogue, where um, they, they can at times come across that, uh, you know, I'm here to help. I'm here to be, I'm an ally. I want to be an ally. I'm here to help. Um, they don't quite say it that way, um, but um, they come across that way. And they need to come to realize that that is not welcome. That is not appreciated by uh, people of color in those things. What is welcome is openness, uh, a willingness to learn, a willingness to, to acknowledge that I can't, re I, I can't relate, but I want to, I want to be helpful, but I, 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 I'd be the last person to call myself an ally. That's not my job. It's, it's really to do and understand where I can be a support for others. And, and if I'm welcome to do that, and if I'm not, I'll still keep learning. I'll still want to commit. Um, it's understanding that um, it's not, you know, there's not accolades for being an ally. All these sort of conversations have to happen, particularly um, for that target group. I mean, the agent group to understand what ally, being an ally really means. And, and, it, and it, it really means start with yourself, start with exploring your own issues of identity um, and not feeling guilty. It's just a matter of, of feeling about how I can um, look at myself first to, to then be effective and reflective and supportive in the way that others would want me to be so that I can be a partner with them to, to help solve these problems, whatever those are. You started to talk about something just now that had bubbled up for me, which was a question about participation. So mm -hmm. you said, uh, which stands to reason, that unless this is something that's compelled, people mm -hmm. that tend to participate are those who have an interest in being right. an ally or who have a curiosity, they have some kind of motivation uh, to understand, to be there. And so that probably has an impact on the, the, the outcomes, right, of, right. The, of the dialogue. Sure. 
But do you prepare or do you screen participants at all? No. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, we have a process to make sure that we have a balance of participation. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and we would, we would look at any issues where um, any concern of, of particularly in a workplace uh, relationships in the room of like a supervisor reporting of a employee reporting a supervisor, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have, have that. Um, I will say that, you know, that um, if we can keep moving on our undergrad certificate if we get anywhere close to how University of Michigan does, they do do some screening, at least in terms of surveying of people who sign up for the course and in terms of identifying so they can parcel out the, the, the dialogue processes so they can have that parity in each of their dialogues that they do. But I, I don't see it as a screening out that, um, uh, well, let's just say that, you know, we do, we do some surveying even for us. So we, when we do it for even the faculty staff, we do, sort of surveying to say, thank you for signing up. Before we get to schedule, we you want to know a little bit about you that you're willing to share on, on this aspect of identity. Um, that may help us as co-facilitators to have, to have an understanding of who's coming into the room. But we've never had a situation where we um, felt um, that we needed to screen out or to suggest this isn't right for you or to... Um, or, or to, to not be able to manage it when certain things do come up. It's never been at, at the extreme. But, I mean, you know, you have to have some care in how you manage it. And, and it could happen where things just kind of fall apart a little bit in the course of mediation because you didn't anticipate how someone's reacting. And it's just being a facilitator in a moment to figure out how you would manage that. So, Well, how do you manage that with a co-facilitator? <laughs> I mean, that, whoa. <laughs> so now that's a whole other layer of intergroup dialogue between the the facilitators and you have to like model certain behaviors. You Reflect have, on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you just don't go in and, you know, I, I've never done this before, but I'm sure I'll try to facilitate. No, <laughs> you want to help me? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You, uh, you know, obviously, uh, even when we've done, I mean, I, I went through a number of di- dialogues first. And I want to say, obviously, many uh, as a professional in areas of diversity, I mean, I obviously had other experiences that prepared me as well. Many of my other colleagues come from that background, so they're already prepared in that level. But fundamentally, as a co-facilitated model, it, you have you do start with your co-facilitator, understand each other. You do have to have some connection. You do. And one thing too is when we ask any participant to share share their story like a testimonial, we're the first to model that. So we have to understand. Uh-huh. We we have to understand um, each other. Um, and again, sometimes when I've co-facilitated with a colleague, I, I don't know him quite as well, but certainly well enough. Um, one colleague I, who's now left the university, uh, African-American woman, she and I have co-facilitated a number of race dialogues. We had known each other for many years on campus anyway, uh, worked together in many. In fact, we were the two to actually begin some of the dialogues. And, and we just sort of understood each other, um, but we understood even, each other even more as we began the dialogues, recognizing we have to be transparent. We have to be um, understanding each other. We, we have to show our vulnerability and, and even show our mistakes. I mean, there are times in the dialogue, it's like, okay, we don't know what we're doing now. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> yeah. We don't exactly know about what we'll, we'll get through it. Um, and we keep working together to find the, the right approach. So, I mean, I, you, again, you don't go going cold with your co-facilitator. You get to know them a little bit. Um, you know, for the most part, when we've done that pairing, it's worked out. There's a few times perhaps not, but that's also... 
in my view, part of life that, uh -huh. you know, you, you, uh, you work with it. I, 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 you know, there can be obviously horrible things can happen in a dialogue over the top where, um, not well planned, not well managed, but beyond that, mistakes happen. People are human. That includes the facilitators and, and the experience is what we've learned from it. There is this glitch, there is this bump, there is this awkward moment or moments. Um, but that's part of the learning, I think. Mm -hmm. um, a one other colleague who's also left university to another institution, um, she always talked, actually she was a former EO director. She always talked about um, if we don't um, learn, if we don't make mistakes and, uh, and allow mistakes, meaning saying some, showing ignorance, showing misunderstandings, saying things and risking a question when, you know, it's kind of off-putting a little bit. If we don't risk that and work through it and communicate and, and learn from it versus just judging it and closing it down, we will not get anywhere. And I think about that a lot, that, um, you know, it, part of the learning is the fact of mistakes and faux pas and things are said um, awkwardly or whatever in a, in, a, in a mediation, including by the facilitator sometimes, that's part of the process. And you have to have to embrace that as part of what we, what we can learn. So. We have listeners so far in 32 countries of this right. podcast, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. So for, for their, um, for, for them, I, so when you said an EO director. Okay. Equal opportunity director. Overseeing. Yeah compliance of uh, discrimination laws and things like that. Yeah. And so. so that also brings up a question that I have with you or for you about where you're a lawyer. This person was an EO director. Is there a certain part of the university or a part of the institution or are there certain characteristics that you would say make for a good facilitator of, of dialogue? I mean, can just anybody do it? Can anybody learn or is it is it more of a like a talent or by nature? Yeah, I don't think any anyone can do it. I think anyone can learn if they're willing to do a lot of self-reflection. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I say anyone can learn. I do. I believe everyone, anyone will learn, will find a way to deep, dive deeper in terms of their own prejudice and their own uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, probably not. But I think that um, that's important. So, so let me also say, so, so talk about being a lawyer or someone involved in compliance, um, as far as who typically goes into this, I'm probably not standard, you know, in terms of that. Uh -huh. um, but I will say that I, 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 although I still have, I'm still a practicing lawyer, in other words, I still have my license, um, I got out of practicing law for a reason, you know, it just, uh -huh. other than the aspects of mediation that I did. So, um, so obviously I don't know if lawyering skills per se are appropriate for dialogue. Mm -hmm. Uh, some of my mediation skills, you know, moving from being an advocate for someone to someone willing to help people connect through communication, uh, listening, and those sort of things is a, at least a start to move facilitating. Now, I, I also want to make, make clear that mediation is very distinct from facilitate from integrative facilitation, but at least there's some similar skills that can translate. Mm -hmm. But I, I think fundamentally, it's it's you know, am I someone who can? Um, be willing to open up here some hard things about me, some hard things about my misunderstandings based on you know cultural misunderstandings. Am I willing to first look at me and my own bias, my own how I step step on things and do things? And that's just not as a white man, anyone in that regard. Um, and, and, and can I be that vulnerable person? 
Mm-hmm. And can I, through that, then understand um, experience and, and uh, spend time listening? Can I overcome the desire to talk all the time? <laughs> can I overcome the desire to, to um, interject my own viewpoint uh, and realize that sometimes by whether a facilitator or even a participant, whether by my putting my voice out there uh, when someone else is speaking or needs to be heard, can change the dynamic and, and that's not where we're at right now. We need to give someone else time. Can I can I understand those kind of relationships and how wh- who's who needs to speak now and, and, and what stories need to be heard now? Um, and, am I able to sense those kind of things as far as what goes on in the room and, and sense interactions where people are um, communicating well, where people are um, communi- are uncomfortable doing so? I don't, I don't necessarily, I think there may be some innate skill in that, but I think anyone who's just tries to be attentive to how people are interrelate and can sense the, the, the communication process. It's not just the words and nonverbals, the paraverbals, all those sort of things. That's important too. I mean, I can go on. There's other things in that list of many things that would be important for a facilitator to do, but it does start with a lot of that vulnerability, willingness to look at oneself first before we expect someone else to trust us, frankly, to facilitate that conversation. This is really taking me back. This is taking me back to dialogues that we have had, that I have had with FIU's global learning faculty over the years, especially Uh during the early years of the initiative. So we have open meetings at the end of every semester of all of our faculty who are teaching global learning courses These could be in public administration, they could be in dietetics, they could be in anthropology, they could be in business, in all of our undergraduate disciplines Mm -hmm. do we have these courses. Mm -hmm. And early on, as faculty were inviting difficult problems, dilemmas, wicked problems into Mm -hmm. their courses as an, an animating feature or sometimes even the backbone of the syllabus. Mm-hmm. So instead of just write, uh, teaching a course on dietetics and learning what people eat around the world, a professor would ask some very essential questions about who gets to eat and what they get to eat, right? Where are there, like, what are the causes of food deserts? Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, deep unpacking political, social, economic, cultural ways and dynamics that surround our nutrition. And these are tough discussions to have, especially in an institution such as our own and, and perhaps like IUPUI as well, where many of our students, the majority of our students come from what would be deemed underprivileged mm-hmm. backgrounds, right? They're, they're Pell Grant eligible. Absolutely. They, yep. We have a terrible problem with food insecurity on our campus. Right? There's issues in, as an urban institution, IPI has those kind of issues. Exactly. Absolutely. So we're having these discussions about these things in a, quote, academic setting. And mm-hmm. some of the students in the room may not have had breakfast may not know where their lunch is coming from, may not know where their dinner is coming from. And so students would start to speak about these things, and it could get contentious. And some faculty 
would say, well, I just don't think there's a place for those kind of issues in my course. But then I started to wonder, well, is it that there's a, not a place for those issues in their courses? Or is it that they're uncomfortable leading those dialogues or they're afraid? Yeah. Right. So, so, so would you say that the things that one would learn in learning how to lead a, or facilitate an intergroup dialogue would be applicable to a non-intergroup dialogue course, if you will, like into any course? Because the way you describe it, it sounds to me like really good teaching yeah. skills in any course in which we would have discussion or which could move into a dialoguing space. Yes, I think that, uh, first of all, the what we call our dialogue intensive courses, where the dialogue is throughout the curriculum, there aren't that many courses doing that. And um, also there's a struggle to identify how to place it in the curriculum and having a time to cover the curriculum, the content, as well as the dialogue in that. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we do think a lot about how um, certain parts of the integrative dialogue model can be used in other aspects of, of teaching. So yes, I think there's applications there. I, probably the big distinction, or if, if, if I, like I said, the, the stage one and stage two, the dialogue principles, which doesn't necessarily take a lot of time, but the, the sharing of experience and managing that process, if we didn't get to the difficult conversations and the what, what's going on in the world kind of conversations, but we prepared people to at least listen to one another in a different way than they've done before, to me, that's success. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you, I, I do think you have to take the, the model fairly in order. So, you, so one thing I often say when I'm introducing your dialogue, you know, my, I've been around long enough that I've been part of um, bad diversity training, bad diversity education, and not only been a part of it, I've been guilty of delivering it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, ba basically, the whole idea of that is, is uh, we all have our experiences is simply you come into the room and okay, today we're going to talk about race or today we're going to, we're going to explore all these issues and, and we don't know each other, but doesn't matter. You're here. You're expected to talk. You expect to listen and learn. And, and we leave unhappy. We leave never wanting to do this again. And that's, but, but, but that stage three, I talked about the difficult conversations is recognizing we do have to have those conversations. They are needed, but it's how we have them and how we build to them. And that's why stage one and two comes before that to say, let's understand dialogue and let's have an intact group to experience this and let's uh, spend time hearing uh, experiences in a non-judgmental format. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's, you know, occasionally I'm, I'm talking to a faculty member about um, doing something a little different for their class. I can't do intergroup dialogue. I can't go that deep. Sometimes I've even helped them in their classroom do a few things to facilitate some things. And it's just simply how far we go, but it's still meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely think that um, faculty can look at different models for um, parts of intergroup dialogue and how it applies. Um, it's just how far they can go, but it's all meaningful. It's all helpful. It's all important. Um, and I, what I, I think I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Did I just oh. interrupt you? Oh, we're fine. Okay. <laughs> well, what I, what I think I hear you saying is that the dialogue becomes the content of the course. It becomes part of the content of the course, right? Right, right? right. yes. It's, it's how it's, 
it's how it's taught. I mean, that, you know, the going away from all the didactic stuff to, to going strict to, to a different model of how, how students learn. Now, I mean, we're all doing that. I think there's obviously change in how, how faculty are teaching um, courses over time versus just lecture. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's uh, reducing lecture as an example, moving towards other ways of people learning um, or balancing lecture with these sort of processes. So, I mean, there is a challenge of how am I going to incorporate the, how am I going to change my curriculum uh, versus what I've done in the past? Mm -hmm. um, let me, one thing that um, University of Michigan and all the research, and I should say it's not just University of Michigan, but a number of institutions when the whole integrative dialogue process came on board, um, they did what was referred to as a multiversity research. Um, and the, the this is very, gen I'm generalizing horribly here, but the, the basic issue of that research is simply comparing a number of courses where it's simply the lecture, simply the content, imparting the content, and and those sort of things, and then the same course doing some lecture, but then incorporating intergroup dialogue throughout that and showing the, the learning, the difference in learning and mm -hmm. reflection, um, the comfort level of having these conversations, the, the uh, wanting to do more outside of the class in terms of social change, that, that study showed those distinctions um, uh, in a significant way. And so there, a lot of it is the validating the whole process over time in terms of why intergroup dialogue makes sense. There's a lot of good research about it that um, not just the University of Michigan, but many have done to, to show those distinctions and how applications of intergroup dialogue in the, in the classroom changes learning, changes how, how students reflect um, their commitments to issues around diversity and things like that. So, so yeah. you know, I have been watching kind of from afar this concept for okay. a while and ob observing it, but you've got me ready to take more of a deeper dive. <laughs> you know, <What>? I want to, <laughs> I, I want to, I want to do some looking into, you know, how can I engage in training? How can I bring training to my university? Um, where might there be research that I could use to advocate for putting some resources into this? So can you help us with that a little bit? Like, <laughs> can you, you've, you've given us a beautiful kind of overview about what intergroup dialogue is, what it can look like at, what insti at one institution. Now, where do we go for more? <laughs> Anything that you can share with us? Of course, I'm happy to talk to people about our experience, but I, I won't say that IPI is, um, you know, the, uh, you know, we're, we're moving along and, and there are some things about what we do, particularly the faculty staff that may be a little distinct from some other institutions. Um, University of Michigan, as I've mentioned, would be the best source. They're not the only source. I think uh, uh, UMass Amherst, mm -hmm. there's a program there. Um, the University of Washington um, so School of Social Work has a program, uh, Skidmore College is one that that's um, uh, doing a lot of good things. And, and by the way, I think all these institutions have connections with the University of Michigan anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but, but start with the University of Michigan. Um, first of all, their website is very robust. There's a lot of research already on the website. Um, the other thing is that um, every June they have an institute where, um, you know, they, they really are, they, 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 they're, Part of their programming is supporting other universities as they think about intergroup dialogue and um, in building up those the program at their institution. So uh, that's the best place to start. And, and, and again, if um, 
if you don't find the research through their website and others, you can call them up and they'll help, I'm sure, identify other research that's, that uh, others are doing. But that's that would be a good start. And so. we'll definitely link to that program in the show notes. We'll link to your program in the show notes. And I'll sure. do a little bit of looking to see if there's any evidence of intergroup dialogue being facilitated in other parts of the world. I, I don't know if you know of that. I'm, I'm, I'm a beginner in this yeah. space, so I don't know. I don't know for a fact. I, I can imagine that there are, and not to mention that the connections other universities have with global learning and, and students from other countries coming in and uh, um, partnerships with other universities. I, I would imagine that uh, th- this happening, but I don't know for a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can say that I, I thought about that issue a little bit. And um, I know that one place that universities might want to consider as far as sending students out, uh, going through dialogue would be obviously a study abroad programs. Um, would be that uh, that area especially might be um, what can we do um, meaningfully for intergroup dialogue experience before students go out to have that that broader study abroad experience and and while they're abroad I mean as, as well as while they're abroad absolutely. right like I mean if we're going to bridge that gap between food fun and festivals yeah. Yeah. and true global learning in yeah. an international space right. off campus yeah. then wouldn't there need to be some type of dialogue sure. baked yeah. into that curriculum? Yeah. I, I'm going to guess that University of Michigan would be very knowledgeable about other institutions <laughs> beyond the United States that are doing some things. So, I just <laughs> want to thank you so much for spending some time with me this afternoon, Daniel. I, I remember listening to you speaking on it was my birthday actually it was oh. September 6th so I, I, I'll I'll never forget the day that we met <laughs> it was my 53rd birthday <laughs> and I remember sitting there thinking I gotta invite this dude to be part of the podcast <laughs> yeah so uh, it's just been a delight to actually make that that vision come come true well, I've enjoyed the conversation. I Again, if I can be helpful, uh, not just to you, but others uh, about this issue in terms of our experience at IPI or just how I've looked at that, I'm happy to do so. But um, I appreciate the time as well. It's, I've enjoyed this. So, Fantastic. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Global Learning Universal. This podcast is brought to you by FIU's Office of Global Learning Initiatives, Media Technology Services, and our Disability Resource Center. You can find all our episodes, show notes, transcripts, and discussion guides on our webpage, globallearningpodcast.fiu.edu. And if this episode was meaningful to you, please share it with colleagues, friends, and students. You can even give it a rating on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in and for all you do to make global learning universal.